So would you like to turn to Paul's letter to the Romans and chapter 11, Romans chapter 11. Just before we read that, the, the context, what we've been looking at recently in Paul's wonderful letter, um, it, some people wonder whether when he set out to dictate this, whether he actually intended to say all that he ended up saying. At the start of the letter, he says how he hopes to visit them soon. And uh, he tells them why he wants to come, because... He's so thrilled with the gospel, and it's then like that enthusiasm for the gospel kind of runs away with him, and he feels he needs to explain why he's so enthusiastic, and so chapter after chapter of wonderful enthusiasm spills out, and then right at the end he says, well, I do hope to come and see you soon. And there's a kind of theory that he intended to send a postcard, but he kind of ended up saying rather more, and this letter is... Just the, the, sort of the overflow of his enthusiasm for the gospel. But in that, what we've been seeing recently, also a lot of grief, a lot of sorrow about the state of his own nation. And so in chapter 10, verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. And a similar thing at the start of chapter 9, I speak the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow, unceasing anguish in my heart. He says, he could, he said, I wish that, could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. He's aware that his own people have heard so much and yet in another way heard so little. They've heard words, but they haven't understood it, and they've really missed what it's all about. And so verse 18 of chapter 10, we're looking at last week, I asked, did they not hear? Of course they did. It says, the voice went out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Did Israel not understand? Well, no, they didn't. So he's, he's speaking about his enthusiasm for the gospel, but his sorrow, his grief about his own people, how they had the gospel first and yet they didn't receive it. But in that he sees also God's mysterious choice. And so in chapter 9, if you remember, he, he spoke about that, for example, in verse um, 18, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Verse 16 in that chapter, it doesn't depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's choice. God's plan is in this. It's God's choice while also being the people's fault. And that's a mystery that we find it hard to understand. So verse 21 of chapter 10, all day long I've held up my hands to a disobedient, obstinate people. God hardening their heart, but also they're disobedient. How do you hold those things together? Well, you just have to hold both. And at the end of chapter 10, he makes it clear that Israel's loss is actually our gain. Verse 20 of chapter 10, Isaiah the prophet said, I was found by those who didn't seek me. I revealed myself to those who didn't ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, 
All day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. So Israel rejecting, but God saying, I will be found by those who don't seek me. The Gentiles, the people outside, our gain as a result of their loss. That's the background to chapter 11. So let's read from verse 1. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel, Lord, they've killed your prophets, torn down your altars, and I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me. What was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it's no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. So Paul has looked at this situation where Israel has rejected, they rejected the Messiah. Jesus comes to his own people, but his own people wouldn't receive him. And now, because of that rejection, it's going out to the nations. Paul is saying, I want to come to Rome. I want to preach the gospel there in Rome. Their loss, our gain. But then he asks a question then in verse 1 here of chapter 11, is the nation of Israel then rejected. And chapter 11, the, the, the previous chapters have referred back to what has happened in the past. Chapter 11 begins to look into the future. And chapter 11 deals with the future for Israel. And we'll look at that in, in another week, m- most of that in another week. But it's a chapter that uh, is very important because particularly uh, out of North America, you hear a lot of teaching among Christians about the future for Israel. And things are said that maybe don't quite check with what Paul says here in chapter 11. So we will look at that another week. But let's just to start in it here. He's saying, has the nation of Israel been rejected. They're a disobedient and obstinate people. The word of God came to them. They didn't receive it. And Paul looks around at the state of his nation and says, although it looks like it, it looks like God has rejected them. The answer comes by no means. Did God reject his people by no means? We've seen that that phrase, by no means, before, back in chapter 6, for example, um, at the start of chapter 6, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase by no means? It's a, it's a very strong denial that is very difficult to translate. Um, so you think of the most emphatic, no way, or whatever, whatever would come to your mind, that's what Paul is saying there. He's raising a question and saying, not at all. Not a t- the, the, the King James Version said, God forbid, which is, was the strongest thing they could come up with, although that isn't actually what it says here. But it's a strong denial. Has, did God reject his people? Not at all. By no means. Now, why that emphatic denial? And he backs it up. He gives some reasons for it. Reason number one. 
I am an Israelite myself, he says, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. (coughs) Now, why does he say that? Is he just saying, no, I don't want to think like that because I'm proud of my nation? No, he's not saying that. He's saying, did God reject his people? Well, he says, I am standing evidence that God has not rejected his people. He says of himself that he's an authentic Jew. I'm an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. Why does he draw attention to that? He says, I'm an authentic Jew and God has saved me. He had been obstinate. He had rejected Christ and God met with him and saved him. So the fact that God has saved him is evidence. God hasn't rejected the whole nation. Here's one that he's saved. I'm here, he says. God has saved me. This is clear evidence that God hasn't rejected them. That's the first, first reason. The second reason, verse 2, God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Now, what's, what's the reason there? Well, he says they're his people. They're God's people. And not only God's people, but God's people whom he foreknew. God's people... The foreknowledge of God is really the choice of God. God having relationship with people before they are born. And he says they're his people, and they always will be. And God had relationship with them. God chose them. They're chosen by God, known by God, loved by God. They're his. And God does not let go of those who belong to him. Ever. God didn't reject his, pe- his people whom he foreknew. So, has God rejected his people? Not at all. Reason number one, he saved Paul. Secondly, they're his people. And then thirdly, and just to say, by the way, if you think in terms of preaching three points, and here I am, two minutes in, saying, thirdly, you might close your Bible and get ready to go. There's more to come. (laughs) Thirdly, just to confuse you, he refers then to the story of Elijah. Don't you know what the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah? Now, why does he refer to Elijah? Well, for reasons that are going to become apparent. The story of Elijah, I don't know if you're familiar with that, back in 1 Kings chapter 19 particularly. Elijah, a prophet, a lonely prophet, he, he stands alone against the sin of the nation. With great courage, he confronts sin at its very origin. He speaks to the king and he, he brings the word of God to the king. And then if you know the unfolding story, he then has a great confrontation with all the false prophets, Mount Carmel, they are there, the prophets of Baal, and Elijah. Elijah against 400 or so of the others and just him. And he says, build an altar and put a sacrifice on it. And then he says to them, he defies them, he says, call on your God and tell your, ask your God to send fire on that altar. They call on their God. Of course, their God doesn't exist because there's only one God. 
and they get frantic, they start cutting themselves, they get into all kinds of frenzy, but no fire comes. And then Elijah, with amazing courage, says, now let's rebuild the altar, pour water all over it. It's now drenched in water. And he said, the God who answers by fire, let him be God. He calls on God, and fire falls from heaven and burns down through the offering. Fire normally burns upwards. Fire burns down. God has vindicated himself. And it's amazing. However, the start of chapter 19, Jezebel, the evil wife of Ahab Ahab the king, then threatens Elijah and says, I'm going to kill you. May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I don't make your life like one of them. Elijah was afraid, ran for his life. Now there's a lot happening there. And we won't go into the whole thing about the the spirit operating in Jezebel or whatever. I preached on that many years ago, um, and it's probably still recorded if you want to hear it. But we won't go into that right now. But the point is, he thinks God has vindicated himself, and now everything has changed. And he finds, hey, nothing has changed. There's still opposition right at the heart of things. Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you. And he runs for his life. And then we get this verse that Paul quotes. He runs away. He hides in a cave. God comes to him and says, what are you doing here? And he says in verse 10 of 1 Kings 19, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. He says, I've been zealous by the Israelites. They've rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. What he's saying is, it's all over. It's all over. The nation has rejected you. And I'm the only one left, and they're trying to snuff me out as well. It's all over. God graciously deals with him, speaks with him a second time, says, what are you doing here? Elijah pours out his complaint again. And then God says, I reserve This is verse 18 of 1 Kings 19. I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, all whose mouths have not kissed him. Elijah's saying, I'm the only one left, and they're going to kill me. Then, that's it. It's ended. Your covenant people, they've rejected you, they've rejected me, it's all over. God says, no, it isn't. There's 7,000. 7,000 that I've reserved, they're mine. So why does Paul draw attention to that wonderful story here in Romans chapter 11? Where he says, has God rejected his people? It looks like it. Just as it looked like it for Elijah, it looks like it perhaps for those of Paul's day, the nation have crucified the Son of God. The promised Messiah has come. This ought to be the great vindication of all they've ever believed, same as fire falling on Carmel should have been the vindication of everything. It wasn't. The Son of God comes and they kill him. Well, 
it looks like it's all over. It looks like it's all over for Israel. And now it's out to the Gentiles. God has rejected his people. No, Paul says. God has a habit of keeping a remnant. You know what a remnant is? It's what's left over after everything else is gone. God has a habit of keeping, reserving a remnant. And what was true in Elijah's day is true in Paul's day. For example, uh, in Acts chapter 21 and verse 20, there's a reference there. Acts 21 and verse 20. In Jerusalem, the people who greet Paul there say, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed. goes on to say all of them are zealous for the law, but the point is, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed. Back in Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 6, and uh, verse... Seven, the word of God spread. This is in Jerusalem. The word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Yeah, it looks like it's all over, but actually, no. God reserves a remnant. So did God reject his people? Not at all, Paul says. Reason number one, I'm standing here, he's saved me. Reason number two, they're his people and he doesn't let his people go. And reason number three, when it looks like it's all over, it isn't. Because if you look more carefully, God has kept a remnant. And there are those who belong to him and they're a remnant chosen by grace It's the grace of God that's at work here. If by grace it's no longer by works, if it were, were, grace would no longer be grace. God deals with people by his grace. It's his work. And uh, there's that declaration then, there is a remnant. It's about God. It's, It's not about numbers. It's not about prominent people. It's not about success in government. It's about the grace of God. It is at work, and it cannot be snuffed out. And then reason number four, which we won't look at in detail now, but we'll look at it in a future week. As the story goes on here in Romans chapter 11, Paul makes it clear that God works on a grand scale. God works on a scale way beyond what appears to be the case at any given time. And as Paul expounds this further on through Romans 11, we'll talk about it more later, but just a sneak preview, he's saying that the nations are going to come in and then the time will come when Israel will wake up. They will be saved in, chapter, in verse 26 of this chapter. Uh, verse 25, he says, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. The full number of the Gentiles coming in, it's, it's a temporary phase, you say. It's a bigger picture. Yes, Israel at the moment is sidelined, as it were, and God's going to the nations, and the full number of the Gentiles will come in, 
and all Israel will be saved. It's, they think it's all over. But no, it isn't. The grace of God is at work, and bigger things are happening. The present desperate situation, Paul is saying, is not the last word. Please forgive me for repeatedly needing to blow my nose, but that's where I'm at. A man cold that only some of you could appreciate. Actually, no one can fully appreciate what I'm going through at the present time. Moving on. So there Paul is speaking about Israel. Now, is that what we need to know? Well, yes, there are some important things that we do need to know. But how does all that apply to us? What's the relevance of all of that to us today? Well, we today could look at the present scene in the United Kingdom and pretty well ask Paul's question, has God rejected his people? If you look around and you just read a bit of history, you don't need to go very far back to see well, just in the 20th century, up to the mid-20th century, indeed, beyond the mid-20th century, it was assumed this was a Christian nation. It was normal for people to, if they didn't go to church, to send their children to Sunday school. It was just the norm. In schools, they sang hymns. In schools, they, they taught the Bible. We, it was a Christian nation. It was the assumption the laws of this land were based on what the Bible says. That was just taken for granted. Look at the old film of the, uh, the present queen's coronation. It's amazing, the biblical content in that, and the way they're praying. You think, wouldn't happen like that now. It's not like that in the schools anymore. Those basic assumptions are not there anymore. And then you see the, the church buildings where they still stand, many of them alternative use, but many of them are just... Uh, demolished and not there anymore. And you can look around and you think, what has happened? Has God rejected his nation? You look at the state of the church and you see the statistics. Church attendance in decline. Many churches just holding on and will the last one switch the lights off, please? It's, it's a sad situation. Did God reject his people? The, the question that Paul asks is a question that we could ask today with the same response. Did God reject his people? By no means. The strong, emphatic denial, not at all, no way. But look what it looks like. Well, look, what are the reasons that Paul gives for that strong denial? And do those reasons apply to us today? Well, yes. Paul's first reason for strong denial is to draw attention to himself. To say, look, Paul has saved me. And we could do that. Say, look, here we are. Has God rejected the United Kingdom? Has God rejected his church? Well, no, here we are. God has saved us. We've got a testimony. We've got a story. If we could go round the room, if we had time and hear different stories from different people, how God intervened and saved you. If God hasn't intervened in your life and saved you by faith in Jesus Christ, maybe today's the day he's going to do it. 
Because he's still saving people. He's drawing attention to who Jesus is, drawing attention to our sin, showing us we need a savior. And most of us here have received that message. Has God rejected? No. We're here. We're here. And of course, not just us here, but thousands across the nation. Yes, it's the appearances. The statistics indicate the church is in decline. It's not going to last this generation. Why, it's only the old people who go to church now. Well, look around you. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. God has not rejected. He is still at work. There are some old people here, but, you know. But most of us are young. God, God is still working. It's evident that God is still working. So reason number one, has God rejected? No, we're here. And not just us. Reason number two, the church is his people. Church is not just a human activity. Church is not just a club. It's not just people who are like-minded, who like to gather together and sing and listen to things and so on. It's his people. God is involved in this. And God cares about his people, his people whom he foreknew. That's who we are. Known by God before we were born. Known by God before the world was created. Chosen by him. Hey, we're precious to him. Every child of God is precious to him. His people. He bought the church at great cost. It's so important to remember what the church is. His people. grieves me when <laughs> I meet with, in other settings, with church leaders. And you, you very often hear church leaders referring to, they're, they're talking about where they come from, and they talk about my church. It goes through me like a knife. I think, it's not your church. I can't say my people, my church. No, it's his people. It's his church. We're, yes, we're privileged maybe to have a role in it, but it's his and the problem is, if, if, if I were to think in terms of this group of people, my church, then somehow what happens here then reflects very much on me. And my state of mind is then affected by apparent success or apparent not so good. I would say Elijah made that mistake. I'm the only one left. I've been zealous for you. I've done this. I've done that. Now they're going to take my life. You think, Elijah, cool it. It's God's people. God's reserve. 7,000. It's not all down to you. Okay, Jezebel wants to kill you. Yeah, that's a bit of a threat. But actually, it doesn't mean to say you're failed. Your success or failure is not what it's about. It's God's people. God's church. God is allowed to do what he wants to do with his church. It's not our hopes, our ambitions, our success, or whatever. It's all His. And that's another reason why we can have confidence. It belongs to Him. And He's not going to let it go. And then there's this about the remnant. That was the third reason that Paul gives concerning Israel. Well, of course, that applies to us. We could look around and we can look around at other churches and we could say, how many actually believe the Bible these days? 
How many actually preach from the Bible? How many really love God and put Him first? How many are shaped by what God says more than they're shaped by what society is saying? How many are more shaped by political correctness and what it's diplomatic to say and what you really uh, must not say nowadays? Or how many are actually honoring the authority of Scripture? We can look around and say, how many make their plans by faith in God and how many make their plans on the basis of what's feasible, what can actually happen in a time of recession and so on? And you can look around and you can begin to say, am I only I left? (laughs) Is there just a few of us left? Oh, it's the whole thing. It's, it's, It's just fading away. No, God says there's a remnant. God will always, always reserve a remnant for himself. You look at the history of the, in the Old Testament. You see all the, uh, do you ever read the Old Testament? Why did God put it in the Bible? Because he wants us to read it. Read the Old Testament and you see the history of Israel. You see the times of decline that it looked like the whole thing was going to end. I mean, I guess most significantly when, you know, the, the, the nation divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, Israel, the bulk of the nation, into exile and dispersed, scattered. And then there's just the southern bit. Ah, but they've got the temple. They've got Jerusalem. They will never fall. And they fall. Jerusalem wiped out. The people taken into exile. Well, it's all over. It's all over. There's nothing on the ground now. It's just wiped out. No, there's a remnant. And a remnant will return. And the remnant come back from captivity and they rebuild Jerusalem okay just a few of them but they're back a remnant returns and so the story goes on that's the history of Israel look at the history of the church just in the 20th century think about maybe China the brave missionaries who went into China in the 19th century and saw people saved and then the the revolution and the church is wiped out no it wasn't no, it wasn't. There's a remnant. And you think now of the church in China, there are more Christians in China than anywhere else. Think of Russia. Illegal to be a Christian. Oh, they're wiping it out. A, a militantly secular system, wiping it out. No, they didn't. That's a bit like one of these birthday cakes where they put these infuriating candles on them where you blow them out, you think, and then they all come back again. That's the church. You can't blow it out. They've tried time and again. They've tried, but it always comes back. Why? Because it's his people, and he reserves a remnant. And so let the political authorities say, we're going to wipe this out totally. We're going to make it illegal no, it won't, they won't do it. Not because we are resilient, but because of God's grace, because of God's purpose, a purpose that he sovereignly will uphold. And so in our nation, we've seen the decline over recent years. We've seen the rise of militant atheism. We've seen the rise of 
of militant secularism, the insistence we are a secular nation and the determined attempt to wipe out any reference to God and so on, to be multi-faith, multicultural, but actually we don't even really want to be multi-faith. We want to suppress faith if we possibly can, any kind of faith. And then there are things that we are not allowed to say anymore. And, you know, there are churches who, like us, uh, they, they preach and then they put it on the Internet and people are saying, oh, we're not really sure about putting it on the Internet now because we might, uh, we might get into trouble for the things that we say, particularly if we say anything like God intended marriage between a man and a woman for life. You can't say that anymore. And I've just said it and it's going on the Internet. Who knows what will happen? But these, these are pressures. These are real pressures. And the church then can get into retreat and think, what's going to happen? And so the predictions are, it, it, it won't last. The church is dying. Well, that's possibly the appearance. But actually, we don't look at appearances. We look at what God says. That's the history through the Bible. It's the history through the history of the church. What has God said? I have reserved for myself a remnant. He always will. He has done and he will. And then for Israel, as I say, the the rest of this chapter looks at the fantastic, phenomenal future terms, it's hard to understand the full number of the Gentiles coming in. They're only Israel, uh, are just uh, hardened for a season, but there's going to be a new day coming. What's all this about? How's it all going to work out? Well, all Israel will be saved. There's a glorious day ahead for Israel, and the church is part of that. The church is part of this Wonderful plan for the future. The full number coming in. It looks like it's suppressed. The appearances could be this won't survive. But faith is not based on appearances. Faith is based on God's word. And we have to ask ourselves, what what supplies our encouragement? Is it numbers? Is it success or is it God's grace, God's faithfulness, God's word? Or to put it the other way around, what undermines our confidence? Low numbers? Well, think of Elijah. I'm the only one left. Take it. I, I might as well die, he says. I might as well die. It's all over. God says, no, it's not like that at all. Not like that at all. Our faith is based on God, not on our achievements. And God's plans are bigger than anything we can grasp. God will cause the church to reach its planned climax. It will get there. It has survived. It's like the candles on the cake. You can't blow them out. Now, you see, Paul here, he he understands the situation. He sees that the nation has rejected God. He sees they're being hardened for a season. Or does that cause him to say, well, then it's hardly worth bothering with them anymore. We are, does Paul say we're living in a time when God has moved away from Israel, 
Now it's the Gentiles. I've got nothing further to do with Israel. Does he say it's pointless? No. Remember what he says back in chapter 1 and verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he says, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. So Paul's got this understanding. Yeah, it's a time of just a remnant. It's a time when they've, they've rejected, they're obstinate, they're disobedient. Still preaching the gospel to him, he says. Yes, it may be a day of small things, still preaching the gospel. And furthermore, not only preaching the gospel, but seeing fruit. We can look at how things are in the UK now. And we might pin all our hopes on revival. I long to see revival. Been singing about it this morning. Send the rain. That's, of course, referring to the story of Elijah when he knows that when the nation turns back, God will send the rain. And we can say, oh, I long for revival. I long for revival. I'm reading books about revival. I'm stirred about revival. And if you don't know what revival is, read the books. See what it's about. And while we long for revival, we don't wait for revival. We don't say... It, nothing's going to happen now. We, it, oh, let it happen in the future. No. The gospel is God's power for the salvation of everyone who believes. Paul knows that the, the great ingathering of the Jews is way in the future, but he's still preaching to them, still seeing them saved. And we can say revival is still in the future, hopefully not too far in the future. We still preach the gospel now. And we still believe to see people saved. And we are seeing people saved. We don't just wait. Yeah, let's pray and pray for revival. But let's not make that the big thing. The big thing is what happens today, this week, next week. People hearing about Jesus. And in their ones and twos coming. We long for the thousands. But the ones and twos turning to him. Finding Christ. The work goes on. Even in a time when it looks, the appearances are, I, only I am left. Yes, there are ones and twos here and there. God's doing work. So think again what happened in China. An underground church, it suppressed the suffering, intense, unbelievable suffering. But that work going on in secret, strong Christians. And then when the restraints begin to come off, they come through. And there's a work going on. There's always a work going on because It's God's people. So there's a mystery. God's sovereign plan. He's the Lord of history. He's in charge of the whole thing. But we're very responsible. God's sovereign, us responsible. And we're responsible to trust his word and trust his wisdom. Not to allow our faith to be affected by what appears. Not to become depressed when what we thought should be happening isn't happening. It's so easy to get into that. So easy when we're praying for things, to be encouraged when we see success, discouraged when things go the other way. No, our faith does not depend on appearances. 
Our faith is rooted in God. That's true for things and situations and people we pray for, but it's true about the church. We're not seeing maybe the thousands yet. We believe God now. We trust in God's sovereign plan, and we know we are responsible to press through. We trust his wisdom. Our faith is shaped by God, not by events. Has God, did God reject his people? Has God rejected the United Kingdom? By no means. Look around. God's doing something. There's so much more to come. Oh, God, send the rain. But look what he's doing now. Let's be encouraged in God. And when things become depressing, as they can, we believe God. And it's the people who believe God who say, it's all grace. It's not works. It's not our achievements. It's all grace. It's those people who see the fruit of it all. Let's pray.